0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: As a young mayor of San Antonio, Julian Castro was a phenom in American politics with a compelling personal story. He became known nationally when he delivered the keynote speech at the 2012 Democratic Convention. And then he was a cabinet member under President Obama and emerged as one of the contenders for vice president. Uh, On the ticket with Hillary Clinton in 2016 Uh, A few days after he left office I had a chance to sit down with Secretary Castro To talk about his experiences And where he sees American politics going in the next few years Some of the references you'll hear will reflect uh, Where politics was in early February When we recorded this conversation But most of his observations uh, are very relevant right now William Castro, welcome uh, to the to the Axe Files, but also back to the Institute of Politics where you've been on the board, uh, and where your brother serves on the board now. We we appreciate that.
2: Thank you. It's so, great to be here. So it- you
1: guys are uh, you guys are uh, unique in that you're identical twins and have made this big impact uh, in politics. But you sort of couldn't help it. It seems like given the way that you were raised. Uh, talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. And first, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And congrats on the way that you've built up this Institute of Politics in such a short time. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, my brother, Joaquin, and I are twins, well, born one minute apart. I am older than he is. He says I'm a minute... That's how up- you got to be mayor. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> That's right. I jumped into politics before he did. Uh, his running joke is that I'm a minute uglier than he is. I used to, in D.C., I I used to tell people that the way to tell us apart was that I'm the Castro in Washington with a real job since he's in Congress. (laughs) These days he says that uh, he's the Castro with a job since I'm unemployed. Uh, But, yeah, we grew up with with a mother, especially uh, our mom, that was very, very active in politics. She never held office herself, but she was involved in the old Chicano movement of the late uh, 1960s and seventies. She ran for city council in San Antonio. Talk about,
1: talk about her life.
2: Yeah, she, uh, she was born in San Antonio. She had grown up with, uh, her mom been raised by my grandmother, um, as a single parent. Uh, my grandmother, uh, had come from Mexico when she was about six years old. And, uh, She came because she and her sister had been orphaned. Her parents had passed away in Mexico, and the nearest relatives that could take them in were in San Antonio. So they came through Eagle Pass, Texas, in 1922, and my grandmother ended up with this extended family. Uh, They pulled her out of school to help with the housework uh, when she was in third or fourth grade, so she never finished uh, even elementary school. Uh, She ended up learning how to read uh, she could speak both English and Spanish, and um, she raised my mom as a single parent. Uh, my mother didn't have much interaction with her dad when she was growing up. Uh, my my grandmother worked as a maid, a cook, and a babysitter uh, for her whole life. That's what she did, uh, and she was not very political, uh, so my mother— uh, was basically a child of of the 60s uh, this hellraiser uh, who graduated from high school in one thousand nine hundred and sixty five She went to Catholic school for uh, all of those thirteen years, starting in kindergarten and then went to a Catholic university and got involved in the young Democrats and then got involved in the chicano movement and the
1: Rock in san America. Antonio San Antonio at that time uh, was uh, a town that was going through a lot of Uh, political turmoil because you had a large Latino population, but not represented in the politics of the city.
2: Uh, No doubt. No doubt. There was, uh, you know, this tension in the city. You had a groundbreaking congressman named Henry B. Gonzalez that I think was one of the, either the first or second uh, Mexican American congressman elected. Uh, And, Obviously, Texas being the state that it was at the time, uh, you had limited opportunities, uh, just like you did in much of the rest of the United States, for for Mexican-Americans and Latinos in general. Uh, when my grandmother was growing up, you could walk across storefronts, that, and I've seen these signs that said, no Mexicans or dogs allowed. Uh, and of course, by the time my mother grew up, it was better. There was some progress that had been made. But you still had a very high dropout rate. You had underinvestment in primarily uh, Latino and African-American neighborhoods in San Antonio. And so the prospects for young people of my mother's age who were uh, Latina or Latino uh, was not what it could be. And there was a real frustration with that. And I think it got tied up completely also back then into the anti-war movement and the general activism that was going on. Uh, and that bug bit my mom. Uh, she ran for city council when she was 23 in San Antonio. But not
1: as a Democrat, right? She ran. She challenged she, the Democrat Yeah,
2: party. Well, it, it was nonpartisan back then for city elections. Mm-hmm. But she ran under a slate called the Committee for Body of Betterment. And I still have the poster. Uh, her campaign poster from 1971. And their slogan was, give government back to the people. Uh, It was a very grassroots-oriented effort, really focused on making investments in older neighborhoods and rundown neighborhoods, focused on giving more opportunity to everyone, uh, not leaving people out. But at that time, San Antonio, like most uh, big American cities, did not have single-member districts. So, you know, it didn't matter how popular you were in one neighborhood or war, one ward or segment. If you, you couldn't afford to run citywide, couldn't get support citywide, then it didn't matter. <clears throat> and nobody that ran on her slate won. Uh, there was at least did one. Did they
1: dominate in, in Latino? Yeah. And so they.
2: She, she actually, she did well and one or two of the others did well enough that uh, an analysis afterward showed that if there had been single member districts, there were one or two districts where she could have won and been elected. She was never elected. Uh, She only ran that one time. But my brother and I were born three years later in 74. And uh, you can imagine that we grew up getting dragged to speeches and rallies and organizational meetings. She was active in different women's issues. She continued to volunteer for campaigns. Uh, I remember... How'd she make a living? uh, So she worked... um, at a couple of different nonprofits. And then she worked for several years at the city of San Antonio and then at the Housing Authority. Um, she worked at one of the community colleges. Uh, and, and there was a time also after that period of activism, and I'm sure that you know other folks went through this during that time, where I think she was penalized for being as outspoken as she was uh, and taking on the establishment in that area uh you know who there are a lot of people you see this even today in different contexts uh you know if you rock the boat too much uh, you're you may not be the first candidate for a job at a company or somewhere else that wants a safe bet uh, and and I think that that she suffered from some of that um but you know she made it work she and my grandmother cuz after you, the age of 8 we grew up with with both of them
1: right your dad uh left the home he was a teacher yeah he
2: was a teacher uh he started off early on uh he had uh, graduated from the public schools there in San Antonio and then gone and and gotten his bachelor's degree at UT and uh in the early 60s he graduated uh he became a math teacher And uh, my mother and father were never married. Uh, I guess they were common-law married because they were together for 10 or 11 years. Uh, But uh, after the age of eight, my brother Joaquin and I grew up with my mother and my grandmother.
1: Do you remember, do you have memories of these rallies and events? I mean, are they? Yeah, some of it, mostly
2: negative. (laughs) You know, because who in the world wants to go when you're nine years old or 10 years old to, you know, one of these speeches or rallies. I remember sitting for three hours in this, the main library in San Antonio while the adults talked about who knows what, you know, organizing. And I was just ready to leave, you know, that was part of the reason that I actually did not like politics. If you had asked me at 15, did I think that I would get involved in politics? I would have said, no way. Um, yeah, I didn't see the point. Uh, I thought that it was boring. Uh, I just, I did not see that for myself.
1: Huh. Interesting. She did, um, she was instrumental in the movement that ultimately led to the election of the first uh, Latino mayor of San Antonio, Henry Cisneros.
2: Yeah. She and uh, other folks were involved with um, collecting the data and putting the argument together that eventually led to the creation of single member districts. Uh, In that city. And, uh, you know, former Mayor Cisneros was first elected to City Council District 1 in San Antonio and then reelected a couple of times. Eventually, in 1981, he became the first uh, Latino mayor of a major American city. Very inspirational, uh, meant a lot for the folks growing up during that time. My brother and I grew up. You were what,
1: seven? How old were you? Yeah, when he
2: was elected, I would have been six going on seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't remember that election, but I remember you know a few years on, and uh, all of the the aspirations that were tied into Henry's rise, and to this day we're friends. Obviously, he eventually served as HUD secretary, and right. then I served as mayor and then as HUD secretary. Yeah. and I still
1: uh, see a mentor.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's, he's been somebody who has offered advice consistently mm-hmm. and a good friend through the years. Mm-hmm. And I still call him uh, for advice. Uh, I was on the phone with him a couple of weeks ago. Um, but when I was growing up, there was, there was a significance in being able to say, you know, that Henry is in that position. And look, uh, he looks like me. And uh, if he can do that, I can do that. And so I think that he had that kind of impact at the time on a lot of us who were growing up in San Antonio.
1: But you—you you say your interest in politics came later. You—you you went off. You and yeah, I was interested. I read somewhere that you guys uh, went to night school to get out of high school more quickly.
2: Yeah, we graduated in three years from high school by by going to night school and uh, like, summer school. Why? I don't know. We're just in a hurry to get the hell out of there. You know, just people say that high school, you know, you always hear that high school is the, those are the best years of your life. It's, that's not true for me. You know, I mean, first of all, in high school, um, I was fairly quiet. I'm still not the loudest person out there
1: yeah you're kind of an unlikely politician that's right yeah you know my brother's a little bit more
2: extroverted than i am but he's not that much more extroverted neither one of us is the most boisterous person uh or more most talkative person but in high school yeah i used to talk to to two or three people during the day and my brother was one of them (laughs) just to give you a sense of uh of uh, how social I was, so I didn't, you know. So not I exactly student council president, huh? No, you know, I was involved in different things and played sports, but but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the life of the party.
1: When you're uh, just, uh, you were raised really by your grandmother and your and your mother, so how did that impact on you uh, growing up in that household that was based, you know, sort of a matriarchy um How did that shape your... You know, I think it was fascinating.
2: And now as a parent, I look back on it. My mom was very liberal. Not just in her views, but in how she parented. Uh, I remember Joaquin and I, when we were nine years old, taking the bus downtown. We didn't have a car at the time. We took the bus downtown and watched uh, in the summer of 1984 we probably watched The Karate Kid like six times and other movies. And, you know, she would just let us go. And uh, we would watch horror movies and uh, eat junk food. And um, she let us stay up pretty much as late as we, want, as we wanted to.
1: So the basic message here is if you're a parent out there, <laughs> yeah, let them I, do whatever the hell they want. I, I, I don't even do that now okay. as a parent to my kids. However, <laughs> I think that the
2: magic of it was that with with our homework and other things she actually somehow and i still don't know how i've asked her but she got us to 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 self-discipline uh and to want to succeed and to do well in school and to finish our homework and and do the things that you should do without a heavy hand or spanking us or and did your grandmother
1: play a role in that yeah,
2: she did. But, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, she was as liberal as my mind. I mean, not in her political views. Maybe. Yeah, but in I, her parenting but yeah, style. I mean, they, they were just, you asked about you know, growing up with these two women in the household. Um, th- they gave us a lot of latitude. But at the same time, it was a household that was that was very full of um, respect and a sense that that we had real worth and that you had to make something out of that. And also that you should do, do something for other people, too. Um, and so somehow, you know, it all worked out. My, the other thing that I think helped was that I was a twin. I'm convinced that I wouldn't be where I'm at if I hadn't had Joaquin. Because for those of the folks listening that are twins or if you have twins or siblings that are twins, you know that it's a very unique relationship. And uh, we were each other's best friend. Uh, growing up, we were very competitive. And so I think that that competition between us fueled each other to do better, both in school and in sports. Uh, and I'm not sure that I would have left my own devices in this house that was very lenient. I'm not sure what would have happened. But having walked in there sort of tempered that.
1: Did it make a difference that you were identical? I mean, does it create—that creates—I know it created a political problem for you once— when you got when uh, yeah when Our, my opponent said that we tried
2: to switch with each other yeah yes
1: but uh and we actually had these uh twins here in politics in uh chicago the shaw brothers uh one was in the legislature one was in the city council and uh, they used to uh fill in for each other from time to time yeah. uh so it's not unheard of in american <laughs> yeah in american politics but Um, but I'm just wondering being a twin, being an identical twin versus being a twin. Um, does that have any particular nuance to it? Well, I think that,
2: that growing up, it makes a difference in the sense that you're always compared to each other because you walk through the world looking the same way, having so many of the same experiences as you grow up. Uh, that your identity is formed in some ways in comparison and in contrast to your twin brother, or twin sister. Mm-hmm. And I think that was true with Joaquin and me. So, you know, one of us is the quieter one and one of us is the louder one. Uh, one of us was better at school and one of us was... Uh, better at sports. <clears throat> I was better at school, but uh, <laughs> you, you, so your identity is probably formed in relation to another person more than somebody out there in the general public that that, that just has siblings or is an only child.
1: And then you guys went to college together at Stanford. Yeah, um, you had said somewhere uh, spoke uh, I think movingly about. The fact that you were the beneficiary of affirmative action, um, which uh, you know has been an ongoing issue, certainly in the state of Texas, yeah, it's, it's, for sure, it's been for an sure. issue and and maybe an issue again now with a reconstituted, uh, potentially reconstituted Supreme Court. Uh, what what should people know about your experience? Uh, in college or at Stanford? Or about, with, about with affirmative action. and Yeah,
2: well, you know, a few years ago, I was doing an uh, uh, interview for the New York Times magazine, and I told the author, you know, if you're going to have this policy in place, then people should be straightforward uh, about the benefits and the disadvantages. And I said, you know, I feel like that affirmative action may have helped me get into Stanford and that my, at the time my SAT score was a little bit underneath what I think the median matriculating student, the student that was going there. Now I think my grades and the other stuff was right up there, mm-hmm. you know, did very well. Um, but you know, that may have been one, one, um, uh, benefit of affirmative action. Um, But the part of the story that he did not write about, which I told him, was that when I took the LSAT four years later to get into law school, that I scored higher than the median uh, matriculating Stanford student that was going to law school. And my, my point of it was that that policy had helped ensure that for some folks who had gone to schools that had been underinvested in and, you know, you had a headwind that it gave him him a shot to compete with everybody else for the first time on a stage. And that in my case, when I was able to compete, then a few years down the road, then I actually had excelled and done better than a lot of folks, Uh, you know, done better than, than the average. And I think that that's the way that that thing should have worked. That people are given a chance, and then it's up to you to make something of that. Uh, I know that there's a lot of debate right now. It's probably going to go back to the Supreme Court. and I certainly think that that you know, for my kids, for instance, that they should not be the beneficiaries of an affirmative action program because they're going to have all the benefits in the world, right but But I do think that that there was a value in that. Uh, and that as states grapple with the approach they're going to take, that they need to be careful to maintain opportunities for folks who have faced headwinds.
1: Uh, We're going to be right back with Julian Castro. I want to follow up on the affirmative action point you just made, uh, because you said something that I've heard Barack Obama say, which which is my, my kid's, don't need the benefit of affirmative action. They've had all the benefits. Almost exactly the same words uh, that that you've said. So how should these programs be constructed? How do you because the other half of the affirmative action dis, uh, discussion is that it is good for the campus community at large to have a diverse student body. So it's not just the interest of the student, but the interests of the campus. At large, so how do you construct these programs in a way that uh, that account for the fact that your kids have uh, advantages? Barack Obama's kids have advantages, uh, but uh, there are other kids who don't, and also yeah. that there are kids in rural Texas, for example, whose schools are also under uh, right. financed That's and right. under resourced, uh, who who face headwinds as well. Well, oh, and I think
2: that that a couple of things. Um, number one, it points out that you need uh, you need a process that is nuanced. Uh, folks say, you know, we don't want quotas, and I think that that's absolutely right. That you don't want any kind of quota system. Um, that remember, the idea is supposed to be that if all things being equal, it, when you're when you're trying to select a class and make it diverse, because as you noted. Yeah, I think institutions recognize that there's a value, especially educational institutions, in diversity, in the student body reflecting the larger society, and so that students themselves can get better prepared for the world that they're going to encounter. Um, But any process of affirmative action needs to take into account the headwinds or the challenges that different people have faced. And I think in the years since I went to college, one of the things that I have more of an appreciation of are the different ways in life that people face those challenges. You know, if, if you're somebody that is poor in, in, you know, East Texas, rural East Texas, or you're somebody that is growing up with a disability um, you, folks have these life experiences that create headwinds. And I think any process Uh, That we put in place that you have in place ought to consider that, you know, the different ways that people have overcome. Because that was the idea, I think, in the first place behind affirmative action. I will say, though, at the same time, um, that that if you're a young African-American growing up right now in in Chicago uh, or Philadelphia, that we can't pretend that from the beginning, it is often much more difficult to get to those same heights, like the deck isn't still too oftentimes stacked against folks. And so that, that, I think, is a reason to keep some way, whether you call it affirmative action or something else, some way to offer opportunity to folks who are overcoming challenges and who are overcoming bias. Uh, and and to do it in a way that is respectful and that is nuanced, and that also adds to the experience of the students in those universities.
1: Are you worried uh, that that is not going to be the case? Given well, yeah, the I'm political worried. Change of yeah, I'm worried parties and that so
2: that uh, that folks will pretend like we've made all the progress in this country that we need to make. And as the president said. Uh, very eloquently when he spoke at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 2015.
1: You're talking about President Obama.
2: President Obama, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) Um, President Obama said when he spoke at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge at Selma to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, you can't deny that we've made a lot of progress. But folks also can't deny that we still have a lot to go. And so I do think that there's a place for making sure that folks um, who have to overcome these legacy challenges, uh, that that they get opportunity.
1: Let me ask you a question. This always comes up relative to you and Joaquin. Given your history and given the nature of San Antonio and so on, uh, and given how uh, obviously uh, bright, you are. I think I read that you studied Japanese or something. Mm-hmm. What about Spanish? Yeah,
2: that does come up a lot. Uh, yeah, so when we were growing up, my grandmother spoke Spanish, and my mom speaks Spanish decently, but mostly around the house, you know, they spoke English, and my grandmother would watch her telenovelas on Univision or Telemundo. Uh, and so I grew up hearing Spanish, some Spanish, but I think my mother had also come from a generation where, you know, she was, she, she was slapped on the wrist with a ruler and her classmates were, if they heard you speaking Spanish. So she came from a generation that wanted to make sure, uh, that, that her children learned English too. And I think that that just became the dominant language that we spoke. And, uh, And so I understand, you know, people often write about this or they talk about this and they act like Joaquin and I, you know, that if you're not fluent in Spanish, that you speak zero, I speak some Spanish and I understand it decently. I'm just not fluent at it. So I can get by, I'm just not fluent at it. But, you know, when I went through the vice presidential process, every other article or maybe, you know, 80% of them had that in there, you
1: know. And uh, well, Tim Kaine is a fluent Spanish speaker and got the job, you know. So I'm that just is saying, tr- yeah, no, I mean, to his credit, to his credit. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you, when you, you say you mentioned you worked at a law law firm. You, you worked at a, a celebrated Texas uh, law firm, Aiken Gump, and Bob Strauss, the uh, who is sort of a legendary figure in American politics and in uh, Texas politics, was the former chair of the Democratic National yeah. Committee was there. Did you have? Was he around at the time? No. You know, we were there in the San Antonio office, and uh, and it had been a Dallas-based
2: firm. But yes. by the time we got there, it was the, really the power base was in Washington D.C. But yeah, he and Vernon Jordan, uh, this, this group of folks who have just been, uh, you know, very uh, big into Democratic politics over the years. Uh, I was there a little over a year and a half, and then I left. Uh, because there was an issue where one of the clients had an interest before the city council and they wanted to develop this golf course over the aquifer recharge zone. So San Antonio relies for its drinking water on an underground aquifer. They wanted to put a golf course on the area where that recharges and I wanted to vote against it, but I couldn't do that. They were a client of the firm. And uh, so one day, in January of 2002, I just walked into one of the partner's offices and told him that I was quitting. Uh, And I enjoyed my time at the firm and so forth. But for me, that was, that was a very important moment because it was a decision about whether I was going to be honest with myself in public service and maintain my integrity, or I was going to keep making the money that was very good at that law firm. Uh, And, you know i was only 27 years old i think at the time but i had just gotten bought a house and i had a car and eventually you know we started our own little law firm and so forth but my house almost went into foreclosure uh little by little i climbed out of that but you know i i still think about that time and that it was worth it
1: yeah that was in the days when conflicts of interest were an issue uh, yeah, we're you know i
2: often in, uh, you know I often have a good chuckle about that, considering <laughs> what we're seeing in d c right now
1: um you ran for mayor thirty one years old and you run for mayor of for thirty yeah
2: I was trying to become the youngest elected mayor there had been a guy at the age of twenty eight I think in the 1800s that had been appointed mayor but I was trying to I was trying to become the youngest elected mayor and there was a guy that I was running against who was seventy and trying to become the second oldest elected mayor <laughs> and we went into a runoff and uh and he won in a very close runoff and he actually turned out to be a good mayor for the city
1: well it sounds like uh, it's good that he won because you had a lot more time to achieve your goal than he probably did. But, <laughs> that's right. Uh, uh, but um, by the way, does the word "driven" mean anything to you? It sounds like you um, you were pretty driven from from the start. By the time I, I when I, you say I was when when you would research the fact that you wanted to become the second youngest mayor, I mean that's serious ambition.
2: Yeah, you know, by the time I, I got to law school, I thought that I would probably go back and get into politics. And um I think people are generally all right with that as long as you're straightforward with folks about your vision and why you're running and and also if I mean, you. I'm sure there's an element
1: of you coming back having gotten this gilded education and wanting to serve is probably was probably an appealing thing. For sure.
2: And I think growing up with with my mother and what what she had done, uh, I had a sense that I knew that I could not be happy just working at the law firm and just billing those hours on stuff that I fundamentally did not care one way or the other about that. And so getting into public service in a way was at the beginning a compromise with myself to feel like I was doing something for other people as well to make a difference the other thing is david as you know you've been around a lot of politicians i mean people are lying if they say that there's no ego involved yes i think just about every politician has some amount of ego you want a little it bit of the happens. glory of yeah yes. i mean so yeah of course that that is a part of it but i think the best people in public service it's a lot more of okay why are you in it you're in it to serve people and and you measure your success by how well you're serving people you don't measure the success by you know how loud the applause is or how many dinners you get invited to or how much the press loves you and all that stuff
1: yeah i'm sure that at some point you wish you were invited to a few less dinners <laughs> yeah you know, it's yeah. hard to avoid i've them eaten a when lot of mayor. chicken over the years so when you were mayor uh, you had a couple of major initiatives what what are the things that you're proudest of and what did you learn during those 5 years uh, as mayor,
2: well, the, the things that I'm proudest of were, first that uh, we had a ballot initiative in San Antonio to successfully, I mean, to expand uh, high quality pre-K in the city because there was a gap of young people who were not getting pre-K, and we took it to the ballot. Uh, you know, raise taxes, right? Sales. We taxes. raised the sales tax, uh, and and by an eighth of a cent, and we made it happen. The voters passed it with 53%. Some folks were worried because they thought, this is Texas. It may not pass. But I thought that it was important to make that investment because, as I've often said, I believe that brain power is the new currency of success in the 21st century. And San Antonio has lagged behind, uh, tremendously behind over the years. And
1: what difference has that made? Well,
2: uh, number one, I think that it's given folks um, confidence that we're on a better trajectory in terms but for of the crea- kids themselves. Well, for the kids, um, more prepared as they get into kindergarten, um, more likely to do well on those third-grade tests. And you've seen
1: that already.
2: It, it's a very big year this year because the first cohort of, of pre-K for SA students is going to take their third-grade tests. Uh-huh. So, you know, they actually, this is being measured. Uh, we will look at the outcomes. But... All of the research, in fact, the groundbreaking research on this was, I think, done in Chicago years and years ago that showed that it does have a significant impact. Yeah, I
1: have no doubt about it. I mean, I think mm-hmm. early childhood education is probably the greatest investment uh, that we can make. You know, the brain develops at a very early age. And if you can get a, uh, an early start, it makes, I think, demonstrably has made it. But I'm just interested whether you've seen it, uh, whether you've seen it there. Um you also did a lot of work in trying to revitalize the inner city there, the core inner city. There. Yeah, that, that was the other passion that I had. Yeah, I, grew, I had grown up in the city.
2: I had seen there are a lot of areas of the city uh, that had been neglected, uh, particularly the uh, east side of San Antonio, which was a traditionally African-American part of the city. And then now is African-American, Hispanic, and, and white. It really is a diverse place, um, but still underinvested in. And then downtown— uh, Eighty miles up the road, Austin had had this renaissance in the mm-hmm. downtown area, and San Antonio, even though it has the Riverwalk, which is beautiful, had had not had the same success. And I and the I'll, Spurs, by the way, that's also that's beautiful, definitely yeah. a great yeah. team. Uh, but that was a good example. Their AT and T Center had been built out. On the east side, but not really connected to anything, and it was built away from the Alamo Dome, outside of the downtown area. And so there was not the connectivity, the momentum, the housing, the transit, and we wanted to focus on all of that to create greater prosperity for folks across the
1: community. We're going to take a short break, and we will be right back with Julian Castro. You... Passed on an opportunity to join the Obama cabinet. Uh, You were uh, approached about uh, becoming transportation secretary. Why'd you turn that job down?
2: Well, they were never they were never specific about the the role, but that was probably I would imagine what it was. Uh, I turned it down because it just didn't feel like the right time. You know, I sat down with the president the day after his second inauguration, uh, and uh, you know we discussed it. And, um, but it just wasn't the right time for me. We had just passed pre-K for SA. I felt like had a lot of, a lot of good things happening in San Antonio. And, And when I got into politics, leading that city was really what I wanted to do. That's what I had looked forward to. And so I felt like things were going great. And that, that moment wasn't the right moment. Uh, when he called, I guess, about, Fifteen months later, I just felt like I was in a different place, and he talked you about HUD. Yeah, he was specifically talking about that, and and I had had these two passions as mayor: improving educational achievement and revitalizing the certain communities, neighborhoods, and HUD dealt with one of those passions, whereas transportation did not.
1: What uh, What was the experience of moving from San Antonio into Washington and taking over this agency? In in uh, I, You know, some freighted political times here, very divided.
2: Overall, it was a tremendous experience. I would definitely do it again. Um, The the thing that I got out of of HUD was this deep sense of the big difference that those programs make in the lives of people who are just trying to get a fair shot. And uh, oftentimes uh, people misperceive them, folks who live in public housing or assisted housing— Americans like everyone else in small towns and big cities that are striving and the the boost that HUD's programs give them make it more likely that they're going to be able to achieve their own dreams. And there's a lot of satisfaction from that. Um, The other part was that I got to visit a hundred different communities in 39 states. So I got to see a lot more than I ever did as mayor. I got to see the country and the neat things that, cities and towns are doing out there sometimes the folks that are doing things the wrong way Uh, i learned a lot more about our nation Uh, the challenges were number one there's something special about being mayor of a city that uh, you kind of feel like you have the wind at your back and people on both sides of the aisle because there's an esprit de corps about the city the community community you want job Less jobs partisan. investment, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you want the trash to be picked up. Well, plus really- you
1: can see what you do every day. That's when right. When you're mayor of the city, you can go out and you can see the 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 problems and the possibilities and the impact of what you do in a way that's very hard when you're running a a, a huge federal agency. No doubt. No doubt in fact you know some of some of the most
2: enjoyable moments for me really were the ones on the road where I actually got to go to the housing development or uh go do the point in time count where we talk to folks who are homeless and and try and make sure that we have an accurate count so we can serve them um, the experiential part of it uh, the other challenge is of course it's washington d c and so Uh, you're in an ecosystem where you're at the mercy of a lot of moving parts and most especially the Congress or not moving parts. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a better way to put it. Um, And HUD could do a lot more than it is doing now uh, if it had the resources right now, HUD only serves one out of every four Americans that qualify for its programs. Uh, In 1981, when Ronald Reagan walked in the door, HUD had something like 16,000 employees. Today, it has less than 8,000. So this idea that everything in the federal government, now I know that there are parts of it that have grown significantly, but that everything has grown, that's not true. If you indexed uh, community development block grants, for instance, CDBG, from their level in 1978, 1980, they would be several times higher than the $3 billion outlay that you get today. Mm -hmm. So um, I inherited a department that, while still doing tremendous work really is not resourced at the level to meet the needs out there in the well,
1: country. Well, we're sitting here on the south side of Chicago and that need is very obvious uh, in communities around here, but you know because you come from a state with large cities and rural areas, the tension between rural areas and cities oh, and the perception that, you know, these programs are sort of giveaways for people in cities, for minorities, and so on. Uh, what's the pushback on, on that argument? The uh, pushback is that you know, we can go through just example of example of
2: uh, investments that HUD makes in rural America, in smaller towns. Uh, one of the places I visited was in um, rural Wisconsin. With Sean Duffy, the congressman from from Wisconsin, to talk about the investments that HUD was making in that area and what else we could do, and what kind of investments uh, were they? Well, uh, you know, on homelessness, on CDBG, uh, every state gets CDBG that mostly goes this, when it goes to the state capital, it mostly goes to smaller areas um, to help with community development projects? Yeah, we have in the nation about 3,300, maybe a little bit more than that now, but let's say about 3,300 housing authorities. And the majority of them, the vast majority of them are smaller housing authorities, many of them in small towns. So this idea that, and I often said that you know HUD is only those big cities, I often said that you could... You could really call it the Department of Housing and Community Development.
1: Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, when you name a department, Housing and Urban Development, you can see why people in rural areas would say, well, this has nothing to do with me. For sure. Uh, I remember, in fact, that um, one of the folks who called me
2: uh, right after I was announced as a nominee for HUD was Bill Clinton. And President Clinton, the very first piece of advice that he gave me We talked for about 45 minutes was go to places where they don't expect that HUD has anything for them, that HUD has anything to do with them and show them. That in fact HUD does have something to do with them, and so you know I tried to keep that in mind, and we made some of those trips, and and um, you know one of the most poignant trips I made was to Pine Ridge, the in South Dakota, the Indian reservation, and saw how many people were living in a four bedroom house, you know, like eighteen, seventeen or eighteen people, including two families that were living in the basement. So uh, th- that that department that Ben Carson now is in charge of. Does make a big difference in places big and small uh,
1: i want I want to get to Dr. Carson and the new administration just a couple of minutes on how we got to this point. Uh, because you talk about Bill Clinton giving you advice to go to places where people didn't expect you to go. Do you think Hillary Clinton should have gone to more places where people didn't expect her to go?
2: Well, I mean, I think that, number one, that hindsight is 20 but probably— I know, but I'm asking you for yeah, hindsight, so I mean, if you, I, you're I exempt think here. Any, Given that we know what the results were, sure. I think that uh, if they could replay that, that they themselves would say they should have spent a little bit more time in— in smaller towns in Wisconsin. Maybe up there in Duffy's district. That's right. And Pennsylvania. Even though I know in Pennsylvania, I think that was a little bit different because they had that pretty well covered. Um, But sure. And I believe that one of the challenges for the Democratic Party over the next two to four years and beyond is to get out to those places. Because on the issues and what the Democratic Party stands for, there's really, there shouldn't be much daylight between us and the folks who live out there and there was a time texas is a good example when uh that there was a connection not only because of the traditional leanings of the south but also on labor issues um
1: on the need to invest in smaller communities so traveling uh, around do you uh, in these smaller communities and talking to people do you get uh Trump's uh, Donald Trump's appeal to those voters when he said the system's rigged against you uh, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna help you uh, you're not respected you're forgotten
2: yeah I think that he spoke to to folks in a way that was appealing uh, even though it wasn't always given its due during the campaign I think most many folks I'll include myself in this didn't see the impact that it was having. I can understand why folks would be attracted to that message. Um, as much economic progress as we've made in the nation, you, you still do have, uh, very significant challenges. You think about the fact that uh, a lot of these towns have suffered from job losses, factories closing down. I remember going to Ohio during the campaign, uh, uh, and hearing about a factory that had just closed like six months before. And you could feel in the little meeting that we had this sense of, okay, well, what are y'all going to do about it? Um, so I understand it. Sure. Doesn't,
1: this, doesn't the Democratic Party have to have answers to those questions? I mean, I, compelling well, uh, answers to those questions. I'm not talking about the 100 programs that you could find on Hillary Clinton's website, but a kind of deep, passionate uh, Understanding of those concerns and a plan to deal with a world in which not China and Mexico, but robots and computers are taking people's jobs and will at an increasing pace. That's right.
2: Um, Well, number one is that I think among the many things that are disappointing about the, the result of the election is that, you know, if you looked at what Hillary was actually proposing to do, she had her act together on how to address these issues much more than Donald Trump ever did. So Trump was a much better messenger, and he got the opening there and what folks wanted to hear. But Clinton was much more thoughtful about what we could do. You, you hit the nail on the head with one of them, which is that it's not just this issue of trade. It's, it's really an issue about automation and that there are millions of jobs that go unfilled right now because of the skills gap. And so what are we going to be – what are we doing and how are we tailoring our entire education system to train folks to be able to take on uh, these jobs that go unfilled? Uh, And the Democratic Party has to take all of that and make it – give it a powerful message that reflects the experience that people are going through.
1: Um, Of course, if you're a 55-year-old guy and you've been mining coal all your life – the whole notion of retraining and some for some job that you can't see uh, is is not necessarily a compelling thing.
2: No, that's true. And uh, you know, as a as a former mayor, I would say that you always have to go to where your strengths are. And so, it's not realistic to expect that every community is going to be steeped in high tech. And or that they're going to get automotive manufacturing or something to completely replace what they've had. But you have to figure out based on your assets uh, and how that looks going into the future. Okay, well, what can you build on? And I think that if mayors and and governors out there can do anything, it's to get deeply into that kind of asset mapping process and figure out plans concrete plans to build on those assets some have been some have been better at others i think in doing that
1: have you had any detailed conversation with ben carson uh, i don't think i have to review who he is he's your successor obviously got get gained uh, gain great notoriety as a a brain surgeon but running hud isn't necessarily brain surgery so what what did you uh, have you had conversations with him you know, we had one conversation just before the
2: holidays uh, over the phone, and uh, it, you know, four or five minutes. It was fairly high level, very pleasant. But at the time, I- con- by high I- level,
1: you mean generality? Yeah, it
2: was not detailed. He did not ask, and we did not go into uh, any of HUD's programs or policies. Uh, you know, of course, I offered. We offered after that to uh, meet with him if he wanted to. I think that that most of the nominees on Trump's team had their own process to get ready for confirmation hearings and so that did not happen
1: what about at the staff level did your staff confer with his definitely there and was what-
2: a there was a landing team that and 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 on our end the obama administration was very well prepared prepared papers prepared briefings and they did go through that
1: mhm and and what is your sense of the what's your level of confidence about uh, that department moving forward, you know, like everybody,
2: uh, I'm, I am hopeful because I think that traditionally, whether you've had a Republican or a Democrat, most folks have gone in there and they've recognized the value of the programs that HUD administers and the tremendous impact they ne- they make in the lives of of everyday Americans. Uh, at the same time, I do have some concerns, for instance, uh, on fair housing. Uh, we did a groundbreaking uh, new rule called Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing, essentially to try and make sure that's, that communities are more thoughtful about the landscape of opportunity and how they ensure that everyone has opportunity and, uh, and also work to, uh, to desegregate. Um, and I think it's an open question how that's going to be approached.
1: Do you think Carson, you know, much has been made of the fact that he grew up in the housing projects in Detroit, um, in the inner city of Detroit, inner city of Detroit. Let me pull back from that. Do you think that gives him, uh, some special insight that would be useful as a uh, secretary of this department?
2: Oh, no doubt. That's a def, that's a useful insight. Uh, you know, life experience is, is one of the things that I do think is useful. um, so that that is certainly something that I hope that he will um, rely upon, that experience. My hope is that that'll be channeled in a positive way. In other words, I think that there's a risk that we scapegoat these folks. Uh, I have never believed that folks who live in public housing are lazy. I don't believe that just because somebody is poor, that they're lazy or that they don't want to work or that they, they, they can't achieve their dreams. Uh, I also don't believe... That it's the case that government assistance necessarily breeds reliance
1: on it. So you're worried that he his he may use his story as a way of saying, pull yourself up from your by your bootstraps, sort of thing.
2: Yeah, and and I think we all should work toward um, reducing intergenerational poverty. You want folks to be able to, you know, if they're on government assistance, eventually get off. But I do think that you can go overboard with that. Uh, and my hope is that they will strike the right balance there.
1: One thing you, you did on the way out the door was you cut the FHA mortgage fee uh, to try and reduce the cost of owning a home uh, for people who get FHA loans. Uh, that apparently was reversed uh, in the first days of the Trump administration. What's the impact of that, and were you surprised by it? I wasn't necessarily surprised. So we, in January of 2015, um,
2: we lowered for the first time in the Obama administration the mortgage insurance premium of the FHA. Basically, this is how much you have to pay to the FHA to get its insurance. FHA is important because it allows somebody to put 3.5% down. uh, And oftentimes, folks who are buying a home for the first time, uh, working-class folks, middle-class folks, because of the housing crisis, um, because FHA's finances had not been as strong as they needed to be, over several years from 08 upward, though that, that mortgage fee had been increased over and over, and we finally had gotten to a point where the fund, the mutual mortgage insurance fund, was stable, and it was strong. And so we reduced it for the first time, and then we did it again in January of 2017. It would have meant a $500 savings to the average borrow, FHA-insured borrower. For a $200,000 home. To, that's right. Mm-hmm. So that means in some places it was more than mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, these are folks who are working class. They're very responsible. We've made – the FHA made adjustments that mean that it's responsible folks who are getting these. The default rate is at one of its lowest levels in, in decades. And you know it's unfortunate that they reversed that because uh, it would have meant something good for – uh, these folks to be able to achieve the American dream who are hardworking and who are responsible.
1: Finally, you uh, you said in a an uh, in interview the day after the election, um, it's up to Trump more than anybody to make sure he approaches the presidency differently from how he approached the campaign. Being president isn't like being a campaigner. One of the things he benefited from was very, very low expectations. Do you think uh now we're we 're a few weeks into the Trump administration. Do you think he got that message do you are you what 's your sense of of the of the rollout here yeah you know,
2: the for him the the positive case would be that to his base it looks like he 's fulfilling promises. but I think the larger uh impression that folks are getting is one of an incompetent administration uh so that 's one thing, very sloppy. this so called Muslim ban or de facto Muslim ban was a perfect example of this. I said very publicly on issues that it doesn 't matter whether you 're super liberal or super conservative or somewhere in between. you cannot just take an ideology and then dump that into policy uh, implementation. You have to be able to operationalize policy and they what they did was that they just took an ideology, keep these people out. And they dumped that into the operational system of the Department of Homeland Security and everybody else. And it turned into a terrible mess. He has a third string level of folks around him. And, and so you can see that, that even though it looks like, okay, he may be getting some political mileage out of, out of, quote unquote, keeping his promises, it's being done in a very amateurish way, very sloppy.
1: And what about uh, the uh, the wall and this uh, uh, face face off with the President of Mexico over uh, over the wall? Uh, and his general approach to immigration from uh, from Mexico? Uh, you come from a town not far from the border. Uh, what's your sense of of that and where we're headed in that uh, with relationships with Mexico? You know, I I grew
2: up in San Antonio where it's very clear uh, the benefits of a strong relationship with our neighbor to the south, Uh, uh, you know, economic relationship, the familial relationships that still exist, um, the the uh, uh, way that Mexico has been helpful over the years, um, you know, in terms of whether it's been diplomatically or are working to stem the flow of drugs uh, or migrants. There's a strong relationship there that unfortunately the president is taking a jackhammer to. And even if you believe in the wall, there would be a way to pursue it. You know, in fact there is some fencing right now. Now I don't agree with a wall, but I think one of the stronger arguments that folks can make is, Hey, look, you know, you already have part of this border that has a fence on it. Uh, So we've kind of already done some of it. Well, okay, let me... We paid for that. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. Let me grant that. Saying that Mexico is going to have to pay for it is, to me, just strikes me as a way to humiliate the other country Uh, and doing it in a way that, that inflames that country and given the history of United States and Mexico relations. The other thing was that for the Latino community... It continues this narrative about Donald Trump that that he really, you know, what I would hear is people would say, you know, he doesn't like us. Not we don't like him. During the campaign, people would say over and over, why doesn't he like us? You tie this to what he said about that Judge Guriel, who was born in Indiana, and he said that he couldn't do his job properly because he was of Mexican descent. Uh, and Paul Ryan called it a textbook case of racism and so forth. There's this very strong narrative that he's there's just something up with him in the Latino community. He's just done and then he didn't put a Latino in the cabinet okay uh, you know first time since Ronald Reagan. first time since Reagan also given some of the other folks that are in the cabinet, I, I think you could argue that you could go and find a qualified Latino but it's going to be a problem not just for him next time, but also for other Republicans in 2018 and in 2020. And I think, you know, in the electoral map, what you saw was that especially in Mexican-American heavy areas in Texas, Hillary did 6.7 points better than than Obama had done in 2012. You know, she won Colorado. She won New Mexico. She won Nevada. She improved from 2012 in Arizona. He did
1: marginally better than uh, Romney did in 2012, though um, uh, that admittedly wasn't very good. L- let me um, ask you finally about your own plans. Uh, y- you, you are a politician who doesn't have a lot of places to go in Texas. Texas, as you said, is trended a little bit more toward purple in 2000 and uh and 16 but still every statewide office holder is republican the legislature is republican uh there there doesn't seem to be a place to go uh, in politics have you lost your Your interest in politics? Are you regrouping? What 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 do you plan to do with your time in the coming years? Well, I mean,
2: right now, I'm I'm working on a book, uh, for Little Brown that I had been working on before I got into the cabinet that they had given me an extension on. So I'm right finishing that. (laughs) That's right. Uh, I'm you know speaking out and about and probably going to serve on some boards, but in terms of politics, I've said that it's very unlikely that I'm going to run for anything in 2018. Uh, my brother is going to consider a run against Ted Cruz for Senate, uh, which would be quite a race, I think. Uh, but yeah, so I'm just going to watch politics as they develop. Um, it's been interesting for me that the times that I've been out of electoral politics, I haven't missed it as much as I thought that I would. Uh, I think it's possible, it's altogether possible that I'll run again for something, um, so you know, I won't lie to you and say that I don't think I'll ever run again.
1: Democratic Party's looking around for candidates for 2020. You think you, one, <laughs> yeah. think you could be
2: one of those? I said the other day that I won't take that off the table. Uh, there's a long time between now and 2020. At the same time, uh, you know, I'm I'm get focused on what I'm doing now. Too, we don't know what in the world is going to happen in 2018,
1: much less 2020. So we'll see. Well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to hold on to this tape so that. <laughs> If and when you do announce your candidacy for 2020, we can say he raised it here at least second, if not first. <laughs> That's
2: right. So. CNN or
1: MSNBC got it last week, David. Like oh, You're did? second already. All you right. got scoop. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, in any case, even if we didn't get the scoop, it's always great to talk to you. Julian Castro, Thanks for thank having you me. for being here.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.